Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host Glenn Ford. Coming up, the Black is Back Coalition is made up of 15 organizations that work together on issues of mutual concern. We'll hear from two activists who spoke at a recent Black is Back Coalition webinar. And if colonialism is dead, then why are European nations effectively doing border patrol thousands of miles deep inside the African continent? We'll explore why so many African migrants are drowning at sea while Europeans and Americans establish military bases all over the continent. But first, at least 25 organizations around the country are fighting to establish community control over the police. One of them is Pan-African Community Action, or PACA, in the Washington, D.C. area. But PACA organizer Netfa Freeman says some activists mistakenly think that community control over the cops means keeping the blue army of occupation in place. In reality, says Freeman, community control is the best and most democratic way to achieve both defunding and total abolition of the police. There's an element of those who are critiquing community control of police who seem to be suggesting that it's an alternative to defunding and abolishing police, and they're advocating for the latter and saying that something's wrong with community control of the police. But the main thing directly to your question is we feel this. Most of them are saying or thinking somehow that what we're advocating is to preside over the current police departments, those agencies that are extension of the state that are enforcing the priorities and policies that seem to be exacerbating mass incarceration and resulting in police brutality and the racist police. So they seem to be thinking that what we're suggesting is that we are wanting to oversee the racist police and that that's something that's untenable, which we would agree because it's not anything that we're suggesting. Uh, We are advocating, and we can only speak for Pan-African Community Action's concept of community control of the police. We're not the only ones that are pushing community control of the police, but we can only advocate for what we're pushing. So what we're pushing is for there to be a ballot initiative that allows for various communities to kick out the existing, to kick out these very police agencies or departments from their communities and establish their own based on own priorities and policies and duties envisioning that they come up with as a community. Some of the criticism actually seems to be based on semantics, that is, the use of the term police. Well, of course, we understand that no advocates for community control of police envision the community overseeing a force, an institution that looks, acts, smells, anything like the police as they've been constituted in the United States. That's right. And I think that we understand, you know, that the word police and policing in terms of the semantics of it has a visceral reaction for people in our community um, who've been subjected and are trying to fight against what happens in our community because of the police. But then we have to separate it from the institutions from the term like policing, because policing is something that Black Panthers used to do, they used to police the police, you know, when they were trying to do something about the police brutality that was happening in our community. And then also going, just going back, anytime you have any type of class divisions in the society, 
there's going to be one class that dominates the other and has to enforce their domination and their hegemony through some form of policing, whether it be the centurions that the Romans had or basically just anything that we have in our community that we set up that's supposed to enforce public safety and make sure those who would weep violence against anyone, whether they be the police or anybody, that's going to be policing our communities. And so we have to separate that act and that duty or that task from the institution that's currently held by the state and the ruling class. Yes, what proponents of community control of the police, going back to the Black Panther Party, have always advocated is that the community control and decide the composition of whatever organization they deem is necessary for the security of the community, from dangers from within the community or outside the community. But that is a democratic decision on the part of the community, how they will provide for their own security. And I think also with that, that's one of the, probably the misunderstandings because on our part, even that we would take a little bit of responsibility for this, we pretty much have been in publicly talking about the civilian police control board that we would establish that would be staffed by the community and be managing some of the aspects of the police we would create. But we don't talk about our aspect that we actually have thought through and, and have dealt with in terms of the participatory democracy aspect. So people in the community, belonging to the community, coming together in mass and people's assemblies and forming people's councils, community councils like for councils for LGBTQ or youth or women or elders, you know, various councils that would create the mandates and the vision that the control board would have to carry out. And so a lot of that may have been missed by a lot of people because we don't really talk about that, but we would think, we want to suspect that when the term community control the police in some way speaks for itself. We haven't really seen a lot about kind of sort of asking us or questioning how the community has control and not just a, a select set of people that are from the community, which are able to be co-opted or, or bought off or whatever. But we have to, and if it's for it to be truly community control, then there has to be some sort of democratic mechanism that's consistent and regular for the whole community to be able to weigh in on and guide what happens with this public safety. And this is extremely important, that the power shift from the corporate selected elected officials who preside over police budgets today to the community, the people who are actually under the thumb and the boot of the police. And defunding without some transfer of power does not solve this basic self-determinationist democratic problem. No. And I think one of the things that we were putting out, like in the article that we wrote in, in our response, and even what we've said, is that really, you know, community control shouldn't be an alternative, shouldn't be seen as a counter or an alternative to defund or abolish the police. But in fact, really, in our position, it's a prerequisite. If we really want to defund what's going to the so-called or supposed public safety or the police, then we have to first have control over it. We have to have some kind of power shift. And so that means that the people have to be able to take over the budget. They may have to be able to take over hiring and firing and setting priorities and all those things for what is the police. And so without that, there's really no way. I mean, those who are the, what we would call the, I guess, the local misleaders on that level or the agents of the state, the city councils and those who are beholden 
to really big money in various locales, they're not going to just abolish the police because that's what protects the system. We have to remember that the police is not about the police just being racist and doing things against people because they're racist. It is because they're actually an extension of the state. And so their job is to protect capitalism and white supremacy and patriarchal, those three-headed hydras, as, as I refer to them, that make up the settler colonialist paradigm in the United States. And so that being their job, then it also comes without question them having to be repressive, them having to control people, and them having to enforce mass incarceration, and they're enforcing mass incarceration, which really is an unspoken policy in this country, and they have to be brutal. And so if we're not dealing with the ruling class, the class that benefits from white supremacy, capitalism, and patriarchy as the controllers of the state, then we really can't do anything about the police. And so we have to be able to first starting on the local level, because that's where we have the most strategically and sound, that's the one where we have the most power to do something on the local level is to, and here we talk about a ballot initiative, we would actually have a ballot initiative and other places they're talking about it where they're trying to shift it at the level of the city councils and running people for office and things like that. But we've seen wherever there's just a call for defund, We've actually seen where some cities, like in Minneapolis, where they've sort of tinkled with the budget or, you know, done some bait and switch stuff, and that they've actually, you know, they could actually claim that they defunded the police. In some places, they didn't even do that. They, like in D.C., they just took some money from police and shifted over to the school resource officers and called that putting money into social services or the needs of the people. So they can play with that. In Washington, D.C., the budget is... 550 some million dollars for the budget. And so you could actually imagine that they could actually take just a little bit of that money and shift it around, claim they've defunded the police, and then the agents of the state that are out there doing whatever they're doing would really be basically unaffected by that. And we'll actually, we saw that in some one of the other cities where they actually reduced the budget and it amounted to something like 6% of the budget or 8% of the budget, um, which was really minuscule. And this was another budget that had like $600 million in funds annually to the police. And so without us talking about shifting power, we're, we're actually in control of not only the budget, but also refashioning and reforming the police. We don't even have to just reduce money. We just have to use things in a different way, re-envision things in a different way. If we're not talking about that kind of power, then we can't really expect those who preside over the state to defund or to abolish the police out of existence. Yes, some defunding proposals would take money away from the uniform police budgets, and then supposedly distribute those monies to social services and such. But many of those social service organizations are not beholden to, accountable to the black community. What most advocates of community control of the police also advocate is community control of housing, community control of education, community control of the vital public services uh, that the community needs, and on the same political principle as community control of police. Right. And we've always said that without community control of various other things, like the things you mentioned, the community control over police itself wouldn't work. And in fact, 
it's dependent on us being organized as a community, being able to meet regularly as assembly and doing people's assemblies and things like that. So we may as well at the same time exercise that control or that power over the other institutions that govern our lives. And in fact, we see that as a, as a prelude to doing those sort of things. And like you said, there are a lot of these social service agencies and a lot of the uh, people in the community see these social service agencies as detrimental to their well-being, to being adverse to their well-being, like, for instance, child protective services or things like that. And so if they're not beholden to the community either and that they're just beholden to an agenda that's facilitated by the state and the rules of the state, then that's also going to have some serious consequences. And it's all interrelated, some serious consequences for the people and the people in the community. So we really have to talk about power. And then we use power and we should think of power and the, the term control interchangeably because that's what we mean when we talk, say community control. We're talking about power. And so we have to figure out how to organize ourselves in a practical and strategic way to exercise power and self-determination. And anyone who has seriously considered community control of police as a project has been struck by the necessary magnitude of the organizing project. That is, thousands of people have to undergo political education. Hundreds of new leaders have to be found. Whole communities must adopt a different attitude towards their own security, must develop a feeling of ownership of their communities, and therefore a responsibility uh, to defend their neighbors and themselves. Oh, yeah, and exactly. Without that kind of transformation, actually, anything that we win on the levels of reform from a city council or some kind of mandate or, or something from a mayor of a city is really, it's not really going to amount to much in terms of transforming the lives of people. If we really believe the slogans that we say that we keep us safe and that we are our own liberators and those kind of things, that mean, it requires that we have to be organized. And it means not just mobilization, where we're actually working for something and demanding something and doing direct action and getting actually exercising influence over the levers of the state, but it means permanent organization. So that we're creating agencies and creating projects and programs that are permanent that require us to politically educate ourselves on a continuous basis. If we're talking about having people that work and do a, a term on a civilian community police control board, then we have to obviously have political education and mass political education going on with our people. And that's a permanent circumstance. That's a permanent condition. It's not like people do a few things and they learn some stuff. It's permanent for all of us. And so the moment that we really stop trying to learn and, and deal with the transforming and ever-changing conditions of the society that we live in is the time that we, we've lost and, and will go stagnant. And so if that's what the community control was back during the 60s when the Black Panthers talked about it, and that's what it means now. It means that we have to embark and engage in a rigorous a political collective, political as mass political education process. We're not just talking about people reading a few books, but we're talking about applying popular education techniques where we're all collectively assessing, evaluating, and, and gaining epiphanies uh, together. So right now, one of the things is also where we're happening, we talk, we're organizing on the local level around police and the indiscretions of the police, but what should dovetail into a national demand that really should be part of the demands 
the advocates of defund and, and abolish should be is the 1033 program. The Biden administration has done one of these executive orders, bait and switch sort of things, where they claim to responding to all the calls for racial justice and police reform, where they aren't trying to give more money to the police, but also made some changes to the 1033 program. And that's going to look attractive to people where they sort of tighten requirements or make more stringent application process for different police departments to apply for militarized weaponry. So 1033 program being the program that transfers military equipment from the Department of Defense to the local police. Trump reversed the cosmetic changes that Barack Obama did, but now Biden is trying to bring back those changes. All that's going to look to a lot of people like he's doing something, like we got this progressive president. But even under Barack Obama, they managed to transfer hundreds of millions of dollars of military equipment and multiply by exponential percent the transfer of that weaponry and, and or that those equipment from the military. And so there's really just a cosmetic change. But I think what the point that I'm trying to make is that we have to be consistent and we have to connect all the dots. So if we're really trying to address the state, the state apparatus and the purpose it serves, we have to also be calling for abolish. We don't even say defund 1033. We say abolish it. And this is where I'm speaking for the Black Alliance for Peace. The Pan-African Community Action Pocket is a member of Black Alliance for Peace. And so we have a campaign, an intensified campaign now, calling for the abolishment of 1033 program. And we hope that anybody who advocates for abolishing the police or, or defunding the police signs on to that campaign. We must remind listeners that there was a chance to abolish the 1033 program back in 2014, but that's when that's right. 32, that's 75% of the sitting Black members of Congress voted instead to keep the 1033 militarization of the police program. And it should also be noted that before Barack Obama came into office, no more than $34 million a year was spent on the 1033 program. But Barack Obama, in one year, spent three quarters of a billion dollars militarizing yeah, the police. And that is Joe Biden's administration. Yeah, and we can't let them get away with it. And I think also what you're bringing up here is we have to see right now that this administration or even just the powers that be are giving us heavy doses of this identity politics thing. So now Kamala Harris represents, you know, all kinds. She's the black, first black woman. Black, she was the top cop before. Now she's the first black woman and first Asian woman and, and all this kind of stuff. And then they're also doing it. The head of the Department of Defense, the Department of Defense is also a black man. And they're giving us heavy doses of this while they're at the same time shoring up the police state and all these measures to bring on a, even a more decisive fascism than what Donald Trump, uh, what they can accuse Donald Trump of, of doing. That was Netfa Freeman of Pan-African Community Action, speaking from Washington, D.C. The Black is Back Coalition for Social Justice, Peace, and Reparations has been around since 2009 and is now made up of 15 organizations, all of which are united around a 19-point national Black political agenda for self-determination. The coalition held a webinar last week on the subject, Fascism, Neoliberalism, and the Way Forward. We'll hear from two of the speakers. Jihad Abdul-Mumit is chairman of the Jericho Movement, which fights to free political prisoners. And Ajamu Baraka is national organizer for the Black Alliance for Peace. 
We begin with Abdul Mumit, followed by Baraka. What we are involved with, just to share with you, is some very, very intense, ongoing, constant Zoom call meetings with attorneys uh, on the defense committees for each one of the freedom fighters, not only dealing with the um, building up uh, campaigns and legal initiatives for their compassion release. It's a compassion release, right? It's really force release. There's no compassion release. You got to force them to release somebody that's in jail for jaywalking under this COVID-19. Nobody's being compassionately released. I don't know where that word came from. But everything is a, it's a force and the demand behind it and the demand we must lift up. Many of the uh, political prisoners, uh, Jalil himself, uh, Maroon Schultz and Sundiata, Joy Powell have already had Kojo Bomani. Some of us, we may not be that familiar with the names already had COVID-19. You know, we're real grateful to the creator that they've, they've survived it. But the conditions continue. Kamal Siddiqui is going through some serious medical conditions. So what I'm saying is that what Jericho actually does is a lot of nuts and bolts work that's not really visible to the public. Constantly on the call, crafting legal strategies, focused letter campaigns, calling these pro boards and, and, and governors and and it's a lot of grunt work, and um, it takes a lot to do this and ongoing not to let up the pressure. But it's very good to know that behind us, we have the weight of the coalition. The last thing I want to say is that we have established to the coalition, the Black is Back Coalition, a track record. And for it to be a vanguard organization and mobilization, track record in, in consistency and continuity, regardless of how small we may think our programs may be, how small our marches may be compared to another march, that consistency when it's time to really take the lead and really be recognized by the people, to build up that trust by the people, this is what we're doing. So do not think that any initiative that we're doing, even though it may seem small, whatever, that continuity is there, this is genuine, this is authentic, and guess what? When the people are really pressed back, because more than what we can ever say, the oppressor himself is going to be the biggest educator. Donald Trump has educated more people to the reality of racism and police violence in this country, really showing people the egregious and reprehensible nature of this beast, this capitalist, imperialist beast. Donald Trump, we thank you so much. Now go on and die somewhere. Um, yeah, go on, man. You know, even though we still have it in front of us by any other name, right? So I really cannot emphasize that you look at the 19-point platform for self-determination. That is the blueprint for building a nation in a very complex place called the United States of America. It covers everything from our, our sisters and women's and mothers and families and reparations and police control of community to our health, to, to our banking system, to our finances, to everything that we need to developing a, press, a professional presence so that we don't have to always be hat in hand relying on the oppressor, demanding policy changes to the slave master telling the overseer not to kill us. And we begin to develop in our own midst, our own blood, our own strength, our own power, our own traditions, our own history, how to be our own liberators. This Black is Back Coalition, the 19-point platform, is there. So wherever you are, if you're not part of this coalition that Sister Linda's been advocating us to be a part of, that, you know, we find our way to this, at least check it out. Because you can see as, as this house crumbles, as capitalism crumbles and tries to fight desperately to maintain its profits and control over everything, while it's crumbling, you better believe, sisters and brothers, that we better be building. Because here's an African proverb you can take with you and then our clothes. When two horses fight, 
The grass underneath gets trampled. And we don't want to be trampled under their throw up and their mess and their defecation in the wake of their demise. And the only way that we can ensure that we don't, the only way that we can ensure our freedom fighters are in fact free, the only way that we can demolish this is by building up our own. That is where the emphasis and strength of our education, that's where we have to put our work. So Belinda in Louisiana, Lisa in New Jersey, uh, Chairman in Florida, all of us, Saki and uh, out in the Midwest there, all of us, all of us must put in our work and make sure that we remain in the network of communication and strength. We're talking about an evaluation of the work of the Black is Black Coalition from our organizational points of view. And so I want to just give a quick background on, on, on BAP, uh, the Black Alliance of Peace. Uh, then we talk about the connection between the Black Alliance of Peace uh, and the Black is Black Coalition and look specifically at those elements of the 19-point uh, platform for self-determination that we uh, focus on this year. We've been doing this since we've been a part of the coalition, but we'll touch on those specific pieces. And from that, we'll talk about some of these specific programmatic focus of the work that we embraced uh, this year uh, that overlaps uh, and, and is informed and guided by the work of this fantastic uh, coalition. So quickly, um, you know, one thing, and we've been talking about the context, and, and, and Brother Chairman laid out, uh, I think, a, a very uh, a clear context for how we need to understand the, the historic moment. You know, this pandemic really uh, pulled the, the ideological curtain from the system and exposed uh, the, uh, the reality of this backward racist system a system that's characterized by greed, exploitation, degradation, social insecurity, corruption, uh, and the normalization of coercive state violence. As a result of this and the ongoing capitalist crisis, the U.S. settler colonial state system is facing its most serious crisis of legitimacy since the collapse of the capitalist economy during the years referred to as the so-called Great Depression. And we remember that this economic collapse comes on the heels of the deep crisis of the economy that occurred in 2007 and 2008. A crisis uh, we might understand the African working class never recovered from. So this crisis uh, and ongoing structural crisis that we are facing, uh, we believe has centered the use of force as a permanent strategy for maintaining the hegemony of the capitalist ruling class uh, in this country and really uh, globally. And when we talk about uh, cap the colonial capitalist system, we're talking about a system that uh, includes uh, the uh, European colonial process uh, and their global domination that emerged uh, when it first spilled out of Europe uh, in 1492. So this dependency, we saw that the state uh, was going to be dependent on, this dependency on violence and coercion was the motivating force for launching the uh, Black Alliance of Peace. We are relatively a new formation. We launched in April of 2017. We used the symbolic uh, date of the state's assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King uh, to help to bring a focus on what our concern was, which was basically to help to try to revive uh, what we saw as 
the absolute necessity to uh, bring back into the conversation uh, this connection between domestic uh, repression uh, and the global domination of the colonial capitalist system uh, and helping our people to understand uh, the global nature of what we are up against uh, and to help, help them to understand too uh, the full um, a range of how the state uses force and violence uh, to maintain its hegemony in the U.S. That you can't understand and deal with the state uh, in the U.S., in Detroit, you, if you don't understand uh, what the same state is involved in uh, globally. So we launched in 2017 uh, the thrust of our programmatic work. Uh, we called the uh, No Compromise, No Retreat, Defeat the War Against African uh, people in the U.S. and abroad. Uh, it is a key programmatic work of the Alliance. Uh, the campaign represents, as we see it, a broad strategic and tactical framework. It responds, responds to the changing dynamics of the moment while providing a common collective direction for one peace. When we talk about peace, we're not talking about some, some peacenik BS. We're talking about the African uh, approach to peace uh, concept, the peace idea that primarily uh, developed uh, right after the uh, end of the Second Imperialist War uh, by people like Du Bois and others. Uh, and they paid a heavy price because they connected up the whole notion of peace uh, with it not being able to be realized unless you destroy colonialism uh, and the capitalist system. So we embrace that, that radical concept of peace. Another uh, concept we embrace is the people-centered human rights framework, which is the black radical human rights tradition. And thirdly, uh, our anti-imperialist uh, focus, uh, the work of our, uh, our groups on the ground uh, that are involved in educational and organizing work of the Alliance. We are engaged in this work. We see that there's a war being waged against our people. Uh, and we understood that this work that we were trying to develop, we could not develop this work without reaching out to other forces in this country that had a similar kind of perspective and indeed uh, was providing leadership to this process. So a natural connection that we felt compelled uh, that had to be made was for us to link up um, with the Black is Back Coalition. And that is exactly what we did. You know, the capitalists, you know, they, they have all these interlocking directorships and all of this to concentrate their power. Uh, and as revolutionaries, we got to be about doing the same kind of stuff. So it was a natural connection uh, that we made in linking up our forces uh, with the Black is Back uh, Coalition. In general, uh, we have been working on, on, on elements and, and topics uh, very, very similar to most of what we see reflected uh, in the Black is Back uh, platform. But specifically, we, we, we looked at and worked on a few of, of the uh, elements I'll raise up for a moment. Number one uh, of the platform, uh, the, the demand for the unconditional withdrawal of U.S. troops from the so-called Middle East, something we, we worked on uh, and we expanded that, that idea of immediate uh, uh, withdrawal from all uh, territories that uh, the U.S. was occupying. Uh, we embrace uh, number two uh, that uh, broadly deals with the issue of Israel 
uh, designed this a settler state, and we, we connected up our concerns or the coalition's concern with uh, uh, withdrawing support uh, for the Zion state uh, with some specifics in terms of activities of that Zion state, like the training of U.S. police forces. We embrace, of course, uh, number 10 that deals with the issues of our uh, black political prisoners. We expanded uh, our work to include uh, support uh, for Black August. Uh, this last year, we developed a month-long uh, video series to highlight uh, the still imprisoned uh, political prisoners and prisoners of war. Uh, we embrace number, number 11, uh, the right to uh, health care. Uh, of course, this is part of the broader human right uh, to health. Uh, number 15, the elimination of the Northern Command, uh, which is basically an occupation force. People have to understand that the, the arrogance of this U.S. imperialist state, uh, they have divided up the entire uh, planet in uh, these command structures. Uh, and the territory known as the U.S., where we are located, uh, has a command structure, the Northern Command. Uh, we embrace that, and we also uh, raise that, that focus about looking at all of the various command structures that exist across the planet, specifically the Indo-Pacific Command, but more specifically, AFRICOM, the U.S. Africa Command, which is reflective of um, item number 16 in the Black is Back uh, platform. That was the, in general what we did. This year, we continued with the work the exceptional work and the, the uh, exceptional contribution uh, that the coalition makes in conducting uh, every year this electoral school in April. Uh, and this year was really, last year was really important because of the elections that uh, were being organized at that time. Uh, and we embraced that work. Uh, we participated, of course, uh, in that. We did that because we see uh, that we agree with the orientation that, that understands that the electoral arena provides some strategic opportunities for us as we organize our people. Not as an end in itself, but as a, a, a area of contestation uh, with the state, uh, a way in which we connect up with the masses of our people to organize and educate our people. Uh, so the, the theme of the school was imperialism as a context, where that's the theme that I raised in my presentation, uh, building power to win is the approach to bourgeois electoralism. That is the theme that we embrace, that basically you build power as part of the engagement uh, with this bourgeois electoral process. So part of this electoral process that we uh, embrace uh, for the Black, uh, Black Alliance of Peace is the candidate accountability campaign. Uh, and this is where we raise up various issues connected to the platform, connected to our concerns also, uh, and we expanded that. And some of the issues we raised, we said that any candidate that comes to our people asking for support has to have, has to embrace certain minimal uh, positions. Uh, those positions, as we touched on a few of those already, in the Department of Defense 1033 program, that program responsible for militarizing police forces across this country, uh, stop the uh, Israeli training of U.S. police forces, uh, move toward closure of the U.S. Africa Command. Uh, you have to advocate, advocate the closure of the 800 
uh, forward basis that the imperialist system has uh, globally. Uh, oppose uh, Trump's Operation Relentless Pursuit. Oppose all military uh, economic uh, uh, sanctions being imposed by people, uh, by, by the state against people and nations around the planet. Uh, demand an end to U.S. participation in the white supremacist NATO structure. Cut the military budget by 50%. Call on the U.S. Congress to pass legislation to support the global abolition of nuclear weapons. This is what we have, have been doing. This is what we will continue to do. We are facing a critical moment, folks. As we all know, the, the, the system is in desperate straits. Uh, and it, because of that, is even more dangerous than it has been before in the past. Uh, we are addressing the misleadership class of our people in this country and on the African continent. When we talk about closing Africa, we understand that means we've got to directly deal with the neo-colonial puppets in power on the African continent. Things are going to get worse before they get better. And we have to demand more for us from ourselves as a consequence of that. Uh, so my friends, uh, we have work to do. We uh, cannot allow ourselves to be demoralized by any of the setbacks we might experience. Uh, we remind ourselves that we are on the side of, of our people and history, uh, and that if we keep the focus on where we need to go to transform ourselves, to transform the conditions of our people in this country and globally, understanding who we are as African people, uh, there's no uh, doubt in my mind, and hopefully your minds also too, that we, in fact, will win. Uhuru, Black is back. That was Ajamu Baraka of the Black Alliance for Peace. Ever since Barack Obama's administration, the African continent has once again been crawling with European and American soldiers and foreign military bases. We spoke with Amson Hagen, a PhD candidate in anthropology at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He's been doing research on how Europeans, in partnership with the United States, have essentially extended their borders deep inside Africa in order to keep black migrants from getting anywhere near Europe. Hagen says the focus of this containment policy is the former French colony of Niger. With Niger being a sort of almost crossroads through the Sahara into North Africa, it's taken on a sort of outsized importance in Europe's sort of anxieties about migration, which have been coalescent to this quote-unquote migrant crisis. And so with uh, migration being at the forefront of this, the idea that Europe has extended its southern border beyond the Mediterranean into the sort of heart of the Sahel, we have all of these sorts of anxieties about migration being displaced from Europe and into Africa, and specifically in this theater between Algeria and Niger. And so it's a lot of these sort of tough-on-crime rhetoric and a lot of European Union investment in border protection, migrant surveillance, military training, and a lot of police training in terms of how to identify migrants. All of these sort of support systems and sort of investments, political, monetary, and otherwise, have gone into trying to fortify Niger's migration and anti-migration sort of activities. 
The big player here is, of course, France. Niger was a colony of France and still supplies most of that country's uranium. The United States is also in Niger with drone and other clandestine airports. And then we have Algeria, where at least a million Algerians died in the 1950s fighting for independence from France. But now Nigeria is involved in this dance with the French to keep Africans out of France, as is Niger. Absolutely. Yeah, these sorts of colonial histories to say that they bleed into the present is, is an understatement. They definitely determine a lot of the uh, pre-existing sort of relationships and arrangements that these countries have with one another. And Algeria, right now, uh, lots of political transitions taking place right now and some political instability for sure, and has been experiencing its own sort of understated loss of resources in terms of human capital. There's been lots of high number of unemployment, a high percentage of unemployment, especially among youth in Algeria. And so many folks have been leaving Algeria for jobs and opportunities in Europe, so in Italy and France and other places. And there has been a sort of opening for low-wage menial labor work in Algeria in terms of irrigating farms and plantations throughout the south of Algeria, construction projects and the like. And a lot of this sort of anti-migration rhetoric coming from Europe, and specifically France, with its former French colonies, comes at an interesting time for Algeria, where the sort of larger rhetoric isn't specifically against Algerians, but specifically against black Africans, so like folks from Niger and other parts of West Africa. And so Algeria's sorts of demographic anxiety is sort of understated in the sense that you know the bigger sort of migrant crisis has to do with its southern neighbors. And so Algeria has also gotten a lot of money and security infrastructure support from France. So there's a lot of money flowing into both of these countries. And to keep the money going, though, roots of migration cannot fully be closed. So the dance that you talked about earlier, both of these countries are definitely doing a two-step Lest we forget, the nation of Libya used to host literally hundreds of thousands of black Africans who worked there on construction projects and all kinds of labor before the United States and France and the rest of NATO overthrew Colonel Gaddafi's government. Absolutely, yeah. And and just going back to, I forgot to mention something about Niger and, and the uranium, France's lots of investments in both of these places. And for example, there has been in some of the Maghrebi countries, lots of investments in solar wind farms, especially in the southern regions of the Sahara, so in southern Algeria, for example. And so producing electricity, not just for Algeria, but also for France. In terms of Niger, more than a third, upwards of two-thirds of France's electricity and power grid is actually powered by French-acquired Nigerian uranium, which is one of the largest deposits in the world outside of Russia. And so with Libya, also a a lot of uh, labor is is important uh, taking place in Libya from Nigerians and other West Africans from other countries working in Libya. And generally, these three 
the border zone between Algeria, Niger, and Libya is sort of being deep in the Sahara is sort of like a no man's land. And it's a place where heavily police presence there now, military presence, especially from Niger, but migrants still pass through for work. And there has long been for centuries a history of cyclical you know, migration between these three countries. And so as capitalism is grinding all of us into dust, the movement of people for work from, for example, Niger to Libya has been further strained by other impulses like the U.S.'s fight for oil in Libya, which was under the banner of like protecting democracy. Through a wrench in all of these arrangements that black West Africans had in going to Libya, for example, to look for jobs. At, at the point, they were some of them were held as hostages during the U.S. attack on Libya. And now with Libya sort of thrown into turmoil and being managed by three sort of governing factions at the same time, it's very dangerous for black African workers there who, since the fall of Gaddafi, have definitely been exposed to a lot of racial violence and racial injustice. So Libya is definitely a, a very dangerous place for a lot of people, including Libyans. And it's very bad for a lot of Africans, these migrants looking for work. So now we have these masses of black African people who, because of the horrible economic conditions or the desertification uh, that's occurring in the southern mm -hmm. part of the Sahel at a quickening pace, are trying to move north. And you describe them as being victimized by their structural availability. What do you mean by mm -hmm. structural availability in places like Niger. I was originally talking about structural vulnerability before I get to availability. And the, the idea that these groups of people, based on colonial histories, racialization and being marked as black in a world that is explicitly anti-black, and being from poor nations and having citizenship that doesn't have any value on the global stage, or has less value than other forms of citizenship for people from other places, being impoverished and belonging to places where there are low level of employment for young people, for folks who finish university, there's not really that many jobs there and political instability in certain places. These are the sort of structures that exist that actually force people into sustained modes of vulnerability. So without the ability to get a job, you're susceptible to all sorts of insecurities. You may not have enough money to eat. You may lose your house if you can't pay rent, things that we sort of experience in the U.S. all the time. And so being black, being African, and trying to find a way to live, trying to find some money or a job or stable employment is really difficult if the country you're from cannot provide those things for you. So you have to go elsewhere. And going elsewhere, especially in places where like racial antagonism towards Black Africans are quite high, you're also exposing yourself to a lot of potential racial violence. So those are the structures at play, right? And that those are the sort of vulnerabilities that are ingrained within being a Black African who's poor and comes from a poor country poor in the sense of sort of material resources that are available to people who want to find work. And so the availability there is that 
we have this sort of, generally speaking, a very large labor pool of people who are under unemployed or people who are dissatisfied with the opportunities that their countries are able to provide for them or other countries are able to care for them. And this is where migration is sort of like seen as a part of a solution. So I can go to a place where I can find work and find money, you know, send money home to support my family or come back with money. So this sort of quote unquote reserve labor pool, which is readily exploitable, is available. Folks in parts of East Africa who've migrated to Israel for work are available for these large countries like Israel who need cheap labor, whether it's, again, construction work, farming and irrigation, any other sorts of menial like hard labor or childcare duties. The secondary labor market is what these groups of people are primed to fulfill. Yes, and one should note that at this stage in capitalism, the system attempts to consign as much of the world's population as possible to a kind of reserve army of folks whose employment is not steady or dependable. Absolutely, and with that, we have the ability to, it's almost like a segmented labor market where we have this reserve labor pool, reserve labor army, who is divorced or separated from not just necessarily the means of production, but final products. Their wages are kept low, so they're unable to purchase the goods that they're producing, which locks them in to the state where they're constantly needing work. The only work that's available to them is low wage. And thus, with capitalism consistently trying to produce things with low overhead, paying people no wages, no benefits, no security. They're always available. And after a while, those become, for the most part, the only jobs that they're able to get because it may be deemed better than nothing. This is kind of what we have in a very cyclical fashion. Workers' jobs moved off-site to access lower-wage workers and like cheaper working conditions in a factory in Bangladesh or it's moving operations offshore to Thailand or to Nigeria these are the sorts of things that are happening. And for these migrants, sort of chasing these opportunities, which have been located in Europe, or for many people located in North Africa, because as the middle classes of these other countries are growing, there's a greater need for childcare. There's a greater need for people to fill the crappier, low-wage jobs that the middle classes no longer want to do. And for these particular migrants in the Sahel, around countries like Niger, these people Mm -hmm. are now not only just migrants looking for work, but because of the machinations of the United States and France and the collaboration of countries like Algeria and Niger, these migrants become labeled as criminals, invaders, even abettors of terrorism. When they're just looking for work. Absolutely. And the interesting thing about Niger and and the Sahel in general is that it has been identified by the U.S. and by its European Union partners like France and the U.K. and Italy as a site of a lot of terrorist activity. And there are a few terrorist organizations in the region stretching from Burkina Faso and Mali eastward to Niger. And this is where the U.S. has in Agadez, where they built a few years ago a large uh, drone base when it has an airport in the southern part of the 
Sahara Desert there in Niger, and doing lots of military and tactical surveillance activity in the region. So flying from Niger to police Mali and vice versa. And so migrants traveling along these paths that have been traveled for centuries are now implicated in terrorist activity because they're in the desert, they're in the zone that is being policed militarily by, by Niger, but also international partners. For example, in the town of Agadez, around Agadez, this town in the desert, there are about five military bases there that are run by five different countries. So we've got Belgium, France, Italy, Germany. So there's a lot of, again, military investment in this place in terms of combating terrorism. And so migrants, again, are traveling along these same routes and are, are maybe implicated oftentimes in terrorist activity or charged by international sort of military forces. So terrorism becomes this way of legitimating a foreign presence in Niger. What France has been doing for years with Operation Barkhan in Mali, sort of heavily policing what's happening in northern Mali, specifically because they were afraid that Mali would fall into the hands of jihadists who were absolutely against French imperial political involvement in Mali's affairs. So it's really interesting when France sort of steps up its presence in, in, in Mali to have like a greater military presence. The same thing has been happening in Niger for a little bit of time. So terrorism has very interesting or important role to play in all of this anti-migration stuff that's happening in the region, specifically in Niger. And the sort of social rhetoric around migrants has definitely been as like social contagion. They traffic, they bring in disease. In addition to terrorism, they, they're violent. They don't fit in. They're, you know, they're bad actors. They come from different places that don't abide by local traditions and customs. So the figure of the migrant is definitely a, a category where there's all this sort of anxieties about race and custom and culture and belonging where migrants, especially these black migrants traveling from all over West Africa through North Africa, are seen as just really bad actors. The racial characteristics of this particular anti-migrationism, I think, are pretty stark, if not clear. And there is this sort of globalized anti-blackness is something that's difficult to ignore when thinking or considering this issue. And so what does it mean for Europe to be policing African migration within Africa. Questions of sovereignty always come to mind. And yes, there are lots of bilateral relations and agreements between countries like Niger and France or like Mali and the European Union as a supranational organization. But these are things that aren't necessarily decided upon by the people of these countries. So it's just really odd. And again, the colonial tracings are still there. Like, how does France get to do this? How does the European Union get to do this? You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.